Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you. Our key uh, scripture this morning comes from John chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there. I'll be reading that for you here this morning. John chapter 14, verses 5 through 11. Jesus is spending some time with his disciples, and this is how this particular passage starts. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Sometimes I feel like I'm a pretty sharp and perceptive person, that I'm able to pick up on things or understand things fairly quickly. Um, Other times I feel like the dumbest person on the planet. Uh, I'm the person who searches my entire house for the keys that are in my pocket, I've done that before. Uh, I've never put them in the freezer, but they have been in my pocket. I, I leave, uh, this happens. Karen can attest to this, by the way, because she works with me every day. I leave the room to go get something and then forget what it is that I went to go get. Yeah. There might be something wrong with me. I'm not totally sure, but it's definitely a possibility. I'm not talking to you people. Maybe I saw something shiny and it distracted me. Now, I don't think, I don't think I, I'm this way all the time, but I definitely have moments where it feels like my brain is buried in mud and I just, it just can't come to the surface. Now, I may have told you this before, I may not have, but uh, I am a triplet and when I was born, I was shoved all the way up in the corner and um, I was the last one out the escape hatch and my sisters tried to kill me. While I was in the womb, they deny this. They say they weren't aware of what they were doing, whatever. Um, but when I came out, I had uh, the umbilical cord wrapped around my neck. And so I was blue when I came out. And my mother, I, I actually confirmed the exact wording for this this week. My mother asked the doctor, well, is there anything wrong with him? Are there any lasting effects? And the doctor said, well, you'll know when he's in the first grade or when he's 40, apparently. <laughs> One of the two. So when I look at the disciples in this passage, I cannot help but feel for them a little bit. Um, They are being told things very plainly, and Jesus' words should strike us. Uh, Because he talks about where he's going and whether disciples can go with him. And then Thomas asks this question, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus tells them this very specific answer I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And sometimes I wish I could reach into a gospel story and tell the disciples to just stop there. But they don't. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. He, he probably thought he was being really super spiritual and perceptive at the time. Well, God, just show us. And so Jesus goes off on him. And what does he tell him? If you have seen me, you have seen who? The Father. If you've heard me, you've heard the words of the Father. And he asks this question. Don't you get it by now? Don't you understand at this point? Don't you see who I am? It occurs to me that there are two different ways to look at this story. Have you ever tried to say something really positive to someone and yet it came across as a negative? For example, you look really nice today. Today? What do you mean today? Don't I look nice every day? Right? I'm, you intend for it to be a compliment and yet somehow you end up apologizing for telling someone that they looked nice. Something that was positive was turned into a negative. And it occurs to me that as we look at this, what Jesus is saying, there are two different ways that we can look at this. One is, Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus intended these words to be encouraging. He intended these words to encourage those who had followed him, who had seen all these things, who had heard all these things, that if they wanted to get to God, he was the way to get there. And that they didn't have to look or search or wonder or be confused, but that Jesus was the way to the Father. And yet it occurs to me that so often in our society that those words, Jesus is the way to the Father, is turned into a negative. Jesus is the way to the Father? As if Jesus were making it more difficult. As if Jesus were excluding others. As if he were saying, I don't want you to get there. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Jesus is the way to the Father. He is the way to get there. He is the way to experience God. He is the way to experience life. And when Jesus says these words to his followers, he wants their hearts to be encouraged because they don't have to wonder how to get there. There's a song that I used to love, and, and, and I, I still love it, I suppose, but I loved it for one phrase. Um, it, it told stories about a few people, but in the chorus, it repeated this phrase over and over again. There is no kinder Savior to be found. No kinder Savior to be found. And this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. I am the way, but guess what? There is no better way. Amen? Is that the message that people hear from us when we talk about Jesus being the way to the Father. So guess what? You, you, you didn't guess. Like you know, What is not guessing? What is just repeating what? I don't know if you're aware of that. Uh, we are at our last passage in the Sermon on the Mount. I know. I know. We have spent, are you ready for this? Roughly 40 weeks. <laughs> 
<laughs> total on the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, we, we have. It's been, it's been good. And so this, so of course, I'm not going to end it today because why would I end it just when the words run out? We are going to have one more <laughs> next week. But today we get to the last section. And I don't know how you have felt about uh, sort of these last three uh, sections of the Sermon on the Mount we've been in. The first um, one that we talked about was uh, the, the story of the wide and narrow gates. And I, I, I guess as a preacher, you know, you can focus on a lot of different things when you choose to teach a passage. Um, and so a lot of times when, when I'm teaching a passage, I like to emphasize uh, the grace of Jesus, his acceptance of us, our forgiveness, and all those different things. And yet we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and these passages are not really like that. And, and so we saw the first one where we talked about the wide and narrow gates, and Jesus was very clear that there are only two paths that we can be on. There aren't 10 or 11, there's only two. And one path leads to life, and the other path leads to death. And the path that leads to death is the easy path for us to be on, the one that takes no effort for us to travel. It's the wide gate, the broad road. But the narrow gate is the one that we are supposed to find, and Jesus says only a few will find it. But we are to find that gate, that, that gate of, of following Jesus and, and going down the road to life. And then the second story, which we talked about last week, was about false teachers and false disciples. One uh, person described last week's sermon to me as dark. Um, so I don't know if it was dark, but you know, it was definitely on the more serious side, uh, that's for sure. And, and Jesus goes through some, some very specific instructions. Um, he says that you can tell if someone is a follower of Jesus or not based on the kind of fruit that they produce. You, you can go up to a tree, a fruit tree, and look at the fruit on the tree, and you can tell what kind of tree it is. And so Jesus says that you can tell the same thing about someone's life. If they say they are following Jesus, you can go look at their life, and if they are producing fruit that is consistent with what Jesus asks them to produce, then you know they're following Jesus. But on the other side of that, if they are not producing that fruit, then they're showing that they are not following Jesus. You can also tell by, by the, the quality of the fruit, whether the tree is good or bad. And, and then he goes on to say in verse 21 of chapter 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And I, and I showed you this uh, quote last week. It's not up here today. But Scott McKnight, uh, who I've been reading a lot during this series and have referred to several times, his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, the Bible teaches that our final destiny is determined by works. We may be saved by faith, but we are judged by works. And every judgment seen in the Bible is a judgment of works. So we are saved by Jesus Christ and by the grace of Jesus, but we are saved into a lifestyle. Now, if you remember, I told you that this is a little bit hard for us to wrap our minds around. And the reason why it's so difficult for us is because we are a one way or the other kind of people. All right? We either want to be saved by grace or we want to be saved by works. And so it's difficult for us to understand the intersection of these two things, how they're supposed to work together. 
We have some wonderful friends in Antioch that we had a chance to visit with, and they were asking me about what I was preaching, and I, and I told them, and, and our friend Sandy, who studies the Bible like crazy, does all these, she just looked at me like I was a little bit nuts. I mean, more so than usual, more so than, than the normal, because it is. It's difficult for us to wrap our minds around this idea that we are saved by the grace of God, but that when it comes down to the end of things, Jesus is going to look at what we did with our lives. And he is going to determine whether we followed him based on what we did. So we concluded at the end of last week that it is not grace or works when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus Christ, but it's the two things working together that comprise a life of discipleship. If this sounds weird to you and you want to hear more about it, the sermons are online from the last couple of weeks, and I would suggest that you go back and listen to them um, if, if you want more background on that. So, as Jesus is going to conclude the Sermon on the Mount, he has one more story to tell. And it comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. So if you have your Bibles, open up there, please, and that's where we will be this morning. And this is what Jesus says as his last, his last part here. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are grateful again for the words of Jesus. We are grateful for these teachings that, that Matthew has put together in such a way for us to see how Jesus talks about the kingdom and what kingdom people should be like. Father, this morning as we look at this last teaching, we ask that you would help our eyes and ears to be open to see and hear what you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, this parable is at a little bit of a disadvantage um, over a lot of different parables that Jesus teaches. I mean, there are stories that we know from the Bible and things that we've already sort of decided about and we know what they mean and we know what they're about, but this one in particular is at a disadvantage because... As we did this morning, we all, if you grew up going to church, know a song that is basically this whole uh, parable. Uh, I sang this song growing up, complete with the hand motions, and it was one of my favorites as a kid, because as a kid, the house on the sand went splat, and you got to make the big noise and clap your hands, and that was fun, you know. That's what we did for fun back in the early 80s, was make noise and clap our hands, late 70s, early 80s. And so it was, such a, it was such a cool thing. But in the song, I, I realized as I was studying this passage, we basically entered the messages that we wanted to hear into this song. So the house on the rock stood firm. The house on the sand went splat. And then there's that last verse. So build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ because the blessings come down as the prayers go up. And what's interesting about that to me is that's nowhere in this parable. That last part, 
The blessings come down as the prayers go up. So build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you pay attention to this parable, there is actually no promise of anything necessarily good happening other than one particular thing. The house will stand. That's all that's promised in this parable. So that's sort of what is funny to me. But then I started reading what other people have written about this parable. And there was one word that came up over and over again about this to describe what this parable is like. And you're not going to guess what the word is. So I'm just going to tell you. The word was terrifying. (laughs) This parable is terrifying. And I just, I I just, I never really looked at it that way. So I, I don't know that it's terrifying, but there is something that we need to consider this morning, which I have never given this parable this much credit. Okay? And that is this. Think about all of the things that Jesus has said in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. I mean, think about how in-depth he has gone into our character, into how we think, into how we feel, into what we do, into how we look at other people, into how we communicate with God. I mean, Jesus has dug a incredibly deep well for us to draw from. And this parable is how he ends this. I mean, that tells me something at least, that I haven't lent enough gravity to this story. I've allowed it to be a children's song when really it looks like it is something much, much more. Because Jesus had great purpose and meaning that he wanted us to hear through this story. And he has a very specific point that he wants us to get. So, What is the point that he wants us to get? Well, it starts with these key phrases, okay? Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like. So, Jesus tells us from the the very beginning what this parable is going to be about. The parable is about two different kinds of people. Now, what do they have in common? They have both heard the words of Jesus, but they fall into two different categories. Either they heard and they did what Jesus told them to do, or they heard and they did not do what Jesus told them to do, which tells us something interesting, which shouldn't surprise us based on the stories we have just gone through and the passages we've just read. But it tells us that this story is not a story about faith, It's not a story about belief. It is a story about what? Action. It's a story about action. It's a story about what we do. We want to make it so much about, well, about what we hold on to. Or it's not about that. The story is about what we do. Frederick Bruner, who wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew, um, he goes so far. Now, this is going to, this may blow you away. It, It it really enlightened this story for me. Um, And if it doesn't, just pretend like it blew you away. I don't know what that looks like on your faces, but practice that mentally right now. Um, So Frederick Bruner, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, he argues that the two houses that are built are both built by Christians. Now, this is different than how I have read this parable, but I think he's right. I have always read this parable as one house is built by 
a Christian, someone who believes in Jesus, and the other house is built by a pagan, someone who does not believe in Jesus, someone who has never heard. And so they build their house on something else, obviously, but the Christian built their house on Jesus Christ. That's how I've always interpreted it. But, but Bruner argues that actually both houses were built by Christians. And again, we should know from the previous passages that this distinction is an important one. After all, what did Jesus just say before this passage? What was the last thing he talked about in the one before here? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So he's already drawn a line for us in the passages that come before this, not between Christians and non-Christians, but between Christians who do and Christians who don't. Right? I mean, we, We've seen that. And so when we look at these two houses... This is what Jesus is saying. There is a house that is built by those who, what? Do the teachings of Jesus. And there is a house that is built by those who do not. But that doesn't mean they don't believe in Jesus. Okay? It doesn't mean that. In fact, there is very little attention given to the house at all. We are not told that one is distinct from the other. We're not told that one is bigger or better. We're not told that one is better constructed other than one is built on rock and one is built on sand. That is the only distinction between these two places that Jesus gives us. So Bruner argues that the house that crashes, the house that goes down, is the house of Christians who find Jesus' words important enough to hear but not realistic enough to live. I want to say that one more time. He argues that the house that crashes is the house of Christians who find Jesus' words important enough to hear, but not important enough to live. Now I want to take you back a year. (laughs) Remember when we first started this, if you were here, uh, I talked a lot about how we approach the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember, I told you One of the things that we do when we approach these teachings of Jesus, because they are so challenging, is we first attempt to explain why we don't have to do what it is that Jesus is saying. Do you remember that? Why do we do that first? It's because Jesus is telling us to do things that are so hard. They are so difficult. They they call for such complete change in us that when we read them, the first thing we think is, there is no way that's what Jesus wants from me. And so the first thing we do is try to explain why. Well, this isn't what Jesus means. Jesus means this. Or he's just really sort of getting to the idea of that or these kinds of things. And one of the things that we really challenged us to do was to spend time in each story and just, or each passage or each saying and to just let them say what they said. And so when, when we approach it that way, it, it, it were, we dug so much deeper and got so much more out of it, but we were also challenged in tremendous ways. But we know this is true because we've done this before. We hear the words of Jesus, but we look at them and we say, well, what Jesus is asking is not really practical practical for today. I mean, it might have worked for someone then, but it doesn't work for someone now. Or it's, we have progressed so much as a culture and a society that 
you know, it's kind of naive what Jesus was saying to do. Or perhaps, you know, um, with with spirituality being what it is, you know, it's just, it's, I don't know, it just doesn't make sense to do those things anymore. But probably the most common thing, though we won't admit it, is when we look at the things that Jesus says, they're just too hard. It, it's just so difficult. It requires so much of us. So to put it sort of succinctly, I guess, the words of Jesus are heard, but they are not followed. And Jesus sees this combination of hearing but not doing as nothing more than sand. Something that can be easily washed away. Because it gets hit with the same rain, the same flood, the same wind that hit the house built on the rock. But when the storm is over, the house that is built on this particular place is gone. It does not exist anymore. So again, we are faced in this story, though I never saw it coming. I should have. We are faced with the intersection of grace and our actions. And we see that we are saved by the grace of Jesus. But our actions, again, have a great effect on what happens to us when the storm comes. What happens to us when the storm comes. Now here's the funny thing. Though maybe I haven't seen it, because I wasn't looking for it. In truth, this theme is throughout the book of Matthew, throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament, really. Let me give you an example of a place where you would never expect to see this story. Okay, The story of accepting the grace of Jesus and then needing to do something in order to make it active in our lives. Let me give you an example. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> One verse, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. And here's what Jesus says. Tells another story. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Okay, how is this parable about grace in our actions? Well, what does the man discover? Treasure. Did he do anything to discover that treasure? No, he just stumbles on it. And he sees it, and what does he recognize? He recognizes its immense worth. Now, here's what we don't put into play here. He had two choices at that point. He could have left there and said, I have found such amazing treasure and done nothing about it. Right? But what does he do instead? He leaves, sold everything he had, sold everything he had, and went back and bought the fields so that he could obtain the treasure. In order for him to receive this treasure, what did he have to do? A lot, church. He had to do a lot in order to receive this grace. So this story is actually everywhere that it's not enough to just find the treasure and to run away saying, I found such great treasure. Where is it? Well, it's over there. Great. That's not, that's not enough. It doesn't make sense. Right? If you find this great treasure, then you are going to sell everything. You are going to do whatever it takes in order to have that treasure. So let's take a closer look at what's happening in this parable back in Matthew chapter 7. 
Now, here's an important premise that that Jesus assumes here for us that, that we're going to understand as we read this, and that is this. Everyone is building a house, okay? So everyone is building a house, and we can build our house around our our career, our family, all sorts of different things. But here's the, here's the important thing to understand, because I, I think this matters. Um, everyone builds their house on something, okay? And they build their house on something that they believe is true and stable, whatever that is, whether it's their career, their family, their interests, whatever it is, everybody is building their house on something. And we get to choose what that something is. So no one is going to, no one can make you build your life on a certain kind of foundation. You get to choose what foundation your house will be built on. And here's what Jesus makes clear in this parable. God intends you to build your house on what? It's more than just Jesus. It's the words of Jesus. He expects you to build your house on the words of Jesus. Whoever hears these words and puts them into practice is like. Whoever hears these words and does not put them into practice is like. So we see that within the parable that this is what God intends. And when troubles hit these two places, one either built on the words of Jesus or the, the other one that is built on something else. And, and here's another important distinction for us to make. This something else, the sand, okay, could be anything. But it's one defining characteristic is that it's not Jesus. Okay? It's one defining characteristic is that it's not Jesus. So whatever it is, whatever the sand is, whether it's your family, whether it's your friends, whether it's your career, whether it's your house, whatever you've built this on, its defining characteristic is that it's not Jesus. And when life's inevitable troubles hit, a house that is built on Jesus will stand, and the house that is built on the sand will fall. We are not told that the house built on the foundation of Jesus will be spared rains, floods, or winds as though the teachings of Jesus will shield us from what's going to happen in life. Which is why that last verse is a little bit problematic. The blessings come down as the prayers go. Is there truth to it? Absolutely. There is truth to it. But it's not in this parable. Because that's not what Jesus is pointing to. The storm is going to come. And when the, store com- when the storm comes, one house will stand and one house will fall. And so we see that building your house on the rock is not so much protection from trouble as it is protection in trouble. That it will stand. After all, a, a rock under a house does not shield a house. Right? It just makes it stand. It it helps it to hold up. And anything that is not Jesus is going to fall apart in the storm. Now, what is the storm? That's coming. So there's a couple different ways we can look at this. 
Okay, one is that the storm is life. Trouble, problems, all those things. And if we built our house on Jesus, then when those troubles of life come, we will still be able to stand. But here's just another thought for you to consider. Throughout the Bible, the storm most often represents God's judgment. And the message of this parable takes a slightly different turn if we view it that way. That when the end comes and God's judgment comes, the house built on Jesus will what? Stand, and the house built on anything else will what? And you know what? That kind of makes a lot of sense for what Jesus has been talking about. Right? Because he's talking about people who hear and do versus people who hear and do not. All right? And so that sort of makes a lot of sense. But either way you view it, the intention is clear. One foundation will hold up and the other will not. Now, last thing that we need to point out here. Um, we, need to, we need to notice that these, group are, these groups, these two different groups of people are characterized by a word each. So the, the, the people that build their house on the rock, they are wise. And the people that build their house on the sand, they are foolish. Now, why are those two words so significant? What do you think? Why are those two words so significant? What do they say? They answer a question for us, which is an important question that I have had to answer for people before. And that is this. Who is responsible for making this choice? Okay? I know I've already said that, but I want to drive this home here. Okay? One person is wise, one type of person, one other type of person is foolish. And so get this. They were both given the same information. They were both given the opportunity to make a choice as to what they were going to build their house on. One group made a wise decision. The other group made a foolish decision. So God is not stacking the deck against anyone. As I said earlier this morning, we can look at a lot of different verses and things and view them as either a positive or a negative. Look at what God has done to include us. Well, look at what God has done to exclude us. And I have heard this. If God wanted to save everyone, then why doesn't he? If God wanted this, then why doesn't he? Why does God make it so hard? Why couldn't it be more simple? But look at what Jesus says in this passage. Everyone is given the same information, and they are the ones who choose what they're going to build their life on. And some people are going to make a wise decision because they will hear the words of Jesus and they will recognize that Jesus is calling them to something. And they will build their house on that foundation. But others, for whatever reason, will choose not to. Now, this again is a theme that occurs over and over again in Matthew. That people are given a choice whether to follow and it's not God's fault if they don't. Uh, turn over to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 is uh, another collection of teachings from Jesus where he talks about uh, the end. We've, we've referenced the whole sheep and goats parable several times. Um, but let's look at the first one because to me it's, it's the most interesting in this particular context. Matthew chapter 25 verses 1 through 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. 
The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to the house who sell, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, and this should ring a bell, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day nor the hour. Okay, how does this parable relate to the parable of the wise and foolish builders? Well, obviously, wise and foolish are in this parable. But here's what we see again. You have ten virgins, okay? And they have a job. What is their job? To greet the bridegroom and to light the way. That is their one job. And so... They know that this is what they have to do. And so what do they need in order to do this job? They need their lamp and they need oil. Two things in order to do this job. One group of them fills their lamp with oil and then goes off to wait for the bridegroom. The other group fills their lamp with oil and brings extra oil because they recognize what is going on and they say to themselves, what? Well, we don't know when he's going to get here, so what happens if he gets here after we run out? Okay, So they get to this place, and they light their lamps, and they're all waiting for him to come, and they all fall asleep. And then they wake up in a panic, because the bridegroom is on his way. And those five who just filled their lamps, they look at their lamps, and what do they think? Oh, no. (laughs) We're almost out. So they ask the other ones for their extra oil, but the other ones say no. No, we need this to light the way for the bridegroom. Go see if you can find oil at the places where they sell oil. So they run off, but while they're gone, what happens? The bridegroom comes, the doors are shut, and they come back with enough oil. But the doors are shut, and they ask to get in, and what happens? They are told no for this really interesting reason. I don't know you. Now, one group was wise, one group was foolish. What is that parable about? It's not about how the bridegroom should have been graceful and should have let them in. It's not about how the five who brought extra oil should have shared their oil so that the other five could get in. It's not about either of those things. It's about whether or not you have heard and done, or if you didn't. And there's no middle ground between those two things. These five are ready, these five are not. And when it comes down to the end, that is really all that matters. And this is not the fault of the bridegroom. They knew he was coming, and they didn't care enough to be ready, and that is what made them foolish. So I think I've probably said this ten times this morning in a few different ways, but here it is again. Jesus' words that he gave to us in the Sermon on the Mount were not a suggestion. They weren't 
just things that he threw out there that we might do or we might consider doing. He spoke them with the expectation that we would live our lives under his direction. And church, that is what it means to follow Jesus. And to be his is that you hear what he says and you do it. And, and not doing what Jesus' words tell us to do, Jesus warns, is tantamount to doing a whole lot, building your house, but putting it in the wrong place. Because you're not actually building where Jesus wants you to on the foundation that is his teaching. Meaning that someone has gone to all the trouble to build his or her house, but it's built on the wrong foundation. So, what do we do with this particular parable? And why does Jesus end here? Something I want us to, to, to know is that this struggle, hearing the words of Jesus and doing them, versus hearing the words of Jesus and choosing not to for whatever reason, is not new. It wasn't new to Jesus. It's not new to us. God knows how we should live and what kind of people we should be, and he's been explaining this from the beginning, and we have constantly struggled against God's instruction. Ezekiel chapter 33 puts it this way. This was a long time before Jesus came, and listen to what he says, this reflection that God has. As for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. I like the image that's created there because it describes things so well. There is a difference between hearing about Jesus and what Jesus says and agreeing with him and even celebrating him. There is a difference between that and hearing what Jesus says and being convicted that you need to change your life and that you will give anything necessary to follow him. But Jesus has not given us this instruction because he wants to control us. He hasn't given us these instructions because he wants to limit us. He doesn't give us these instructions in the Sermon on the Mount because he wants us to live some sort of life where God takes away from us. And so often we play God's instructions against our own warped sense of freedom. But here's what Jesus is saying. He wants us to have a foundation that will stand up against any storm whether it's the troubles of your life or whether it's the end of all things. He wants us to last and he wants us to make it. He wants us to be wise. He doesn't want us to be foolish. He wants us to see what's right in front of our face and to do it. And most of all, church, he doesn't want us to come to the end and find that our house has fallen down because we didn't know or we didn't see or because we lied to ourselves in some way, or because we built on the wrong foundation. He doesn't want that to happen to us. And so Jesus tells 
us this story for one reason. He wants you to hear and do. He doesn't want you to be surprised. He doesn't want you to not know. He doesn't want your house to fall. He wants it to stand. And he knows that the only thing that will make it stand is if you follow him. Where he goes, what he says, what he does. That is what Jesus is calling us to. And so he appeals to us. We can be wise or we can be foolish. We can build on something that will last or we can build on anything else, which will not. And he implores us in our wisdom to realize that any other foundation besides Jesus cannot, will not last because it wasn't made to be eternal. And that is not the life that God wants us to live, a life that will fail when the storm comes, when the winds blow. So God, in his great wisdom, he offers us Jesus, who is our Savior and the giver of grace and love and mercy and forgiveness, but he is also our teacher. He is also the one who instructs us on our life. And just like the people in any of these stories we looked at this morning, you have heard the words of Jesus. And the question that sits in front of you now is, are you going to do them or not? And the answer to that question matters more than you know. But this is what Jesus calls us to. Can we be encouraged by that? I can. Because God wants us to live a wonderful life that can stand up to anything. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for the words of Jesus which challenge us this morning. We are grateful for the story which speaks to me, God, where I am, and reminds me that it is not enough just to say that you are Lord, but I, I must acknowledge that you are Lord and then do what you tell me to do in order for you to be Lord in my life. Father, may we all be wise and that we hear and do. And God, as we do what you have instructed us to do, may we see how wonderful and full and good this life is that you have called us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to encourage you to come back next week because we're going to talk about some specifics about how we do these things uh, as we close out this series. I want to encourage you this morning that God loves you, he cares for you deeply, and if you want to respond in any way to this God who sent his son to die for you, who calls you to a good life, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.